This episode is brought to you by Cristo Rey Jesuit High School in Chicago. For 23 years, Cristo Rey has educated Latino students with limited means, preparing the leaders of tomorrow today. Learn about their mission at cristorey.net. That's C-R-I-S-T-O-R-E-Y.net. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the faithfully young, hopefully hip, and lovingly lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. And I'm mad. Why? Because... (laughs) Well, just, because just, Olga Segura had a housewarming party and you weren't there. Yeah, that that one. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but to to just ask me what we're drinking. To the what are we what are we drinking? So we're Zach? we're drinking what I thought was supposed to be a fall drink because uh, sweater weather sweater weather sweater sweater weather, weather. sweater <laughs> weather was here. Mm-hmm. Um, I was pumped for it, and then it's like eighty degrees this week in New yeah. York. I don't Never, hate it. Yeah. Nevertheless, we are uh, drinking having a chilled malt cider. A chilled malt cider because it's hot. It's yeah. actually the perfect fall warm day cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's even got a cinnamon stick. Yep. Yeah. It's, so re- it's really beautiful. This but- is uh, winter Jack. So Jack Daniel's winter. It's like a spiked cider they do. Um, uh, coupled with uh, star of anise and uh, cinnamon stick for uh, and ice cubes. Yeah, and ice cubes. <laughs> <laughs> cheers, uh, cheers, cheers, everybody. Who are we talking to this week, Olga? Today we're talking with Macaw Clifford. He is the director of curriculum and assessment at the Red Cloud Indian School, and this school is based in South Dakota, and it is a Catholic school led by the Jesuits on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Yeah, and McCall was actually born on the Pine Ridge Reservation. He graduated from Red Cloud, um, and after doing studies elsewhere, he's come back uh, to first to teach and now to do curriculum, so to teach teachers. And he has such a unique perspective as both someone who identifies as Lakota and Catholic, so really great interview. But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Olga? So this week, um, it's been a really tough week for survivors of sexual assault. Um, We're recording this on Tuesday, so we can't tell the outcome of this. But last week, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing with uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Um, He's currently up for nomination to the Supreme Court. And throughout the nomination process, Kavanaugh has invoked his Catholic faith as well as his Jesuit education. He attended Georgetown Prep, um, which meant a lot of outlets have picked up and have covered this story. Yeah, and outlets were especially covering the fact that America, as a Jesuit publication, um, withdrew its initial support for Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, Back in July, we had uh, the editors wrote an editorial uh, expressing our support for his nomination to the Supreme Court based on his judicial philosophy, which we agreed with. Um, And then we, after watching the testimony on Thursday, uh, the editorial board decided that the most prudent way forward would be for Judge Kavanaugh to withdraw because of um, the allegations against him from Dr. Ford have not been conclusively proven or disproven. And so given that fact, um, a cloud hangs over his nomination and going forward, any decisions he made on the Supreme Court would be tainted by by that uncertainty. Yeah, I think there's a definite concern about an asterisk that would be next to any decision that he was involved in. In America, the editor's we acknowledge that there, at this point in the nomination, there are other candidates with similar credentials who don't carry this type of baggage with them. And so it's prudentially appropriate for 
uh, Judge Kavanaugh to withdraw his nomination or have his nomination withdrawn and for another candidate to be proposed. And we also concluded that this was not just a what was at stake here was not just who's going to be the next justice on the Supreme Court, but how we as a country treat um, allegations brought by women against powerful men. Um, and this is something the Catholic Church has been dealing with. Uh, so we thought it, America, the, as a magazine, thought it was important for us to, you know, recognize how serious this is. Yeah. And say where we stand. What's our next story, Olga? So next, it's just a quick update on the sexual abuse scandal in the church. Uh, so last week, Pope Francis announced that he would lay aside Fernando Caradima, who is the predator priest at the center of Chile's sexual abuse crisis, which we have covered in previous episodes. Speaking of the sex abuse crisis, we've talked a lot this summer about the need in this crisis to hold bishops accountable. Um, a new group of lay people known as the Better Church Governance Group is hoping to do that um, by raising or spending one million dollars in the next year to create report cards on every single one of the cardinals in the College of Cardinals. That is people who can vote for the next pope. Yeah. And we've talked about the Yeah. As you said, the desire for accountability and lay people getting into this. But there are a lot of questions we have about this group um, and whether or not their motives are extending beyond trying to reform sexual abuse in the church. Right. So there are a few red flags raised in this. Um, it seems that they're trying to say that there's a link between being gay and being an abuser. Um, they have this quote in there that reads, if there is a rumor of him being homosexual, it will be noted very carefully. But we need to be sure. Yeah. And I, there's a question of who is who's funding this. Right. Is it. Is it a couple very wealthy people who have a vision for the church that extends beyond cleaning up sexual abuse, right? I think there's a, a fear from other people that you can, there is a group that is trying to buy influence in the church rather than trying to reform it from like a, an ecclesial model, right? Other people like opted for lay people getting involved in the church to reform it, not sitting on the outside and trying to uh, lobby essentially. And so I think you have a sense that Yes, we want people to be held accountable in the church, but if this is how it's going to happen, there needs to be a mechanism for those who are trying to hold bishops accountable to be held accountable themselves. So all this came out in a report at Crux. Uh, so if you want to learn more about it, go to cruxnow.com. What's next, Zach? Our next story is uh, perfect for the Feast of St. Francis the Assisi, which happened Thursday. Um, there's a little guy named Neo who uh, <laughs> visited the Pope recently. Because his owner, Maria, claims he is the first dog mm -hmm. to have completed the classic pilgrimage Camino de Santiago, the famous pilgrimage route north of Spain. And Maria is very proud of this is fact. Very proud. <laughs> and she thinks more dogs should be able to get to do this. She says, uh, I consider animals are our companions in life, so they have the same rights to do everything with us, including El Camino. And I, you know... I, I will not weigh in on whether animals have the same rights as humans, but I do think it is a concern of animal cruelty to make a dog walk 30 miles a day <laughs> just because you want to bring him along. I don't know what, what the dog, what Neo's getting out of that. But I think, I do think, I, I'm joking, but dogs have been uh, very instrumental in my life and my, like, bringing me comfort and I would even dare say consolation. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is a good reminder that lots of people. Uh, also find that consolation in their pets. So happy Feast of St. Francis to those listening. Very good.
Joining us via Skype is Macaw Clifford. He is the Director of Curriculum and Assessment at Red Cloud, the Jesuit High School on the Pine Ridge Reservation of South Dakota. Welcome to Jesuitical. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be here. We're very excited to be talking with you. So you were also a student at Red Cloud. Um, can you tell us what Red Cloud is and what makes it unique? Yeah, so Red Cloud is the sole surviving institution, the high school K-12 system, actually, that is run by the Jesuits, still on an Indian reservation in the country. I went there as a student, and I think the most important thing I gained from it was a deep sense of uh, what it meant to be part of Jesuit identity, while also being very empowered in my own traditions, my own Native American Lakota traditions that are also prevalent uh, on the reservation. The Jesuit school, uh, Red Cloud as an institution, has made a very specific decision to be an interfaith campus, to be an interfaith school. I think as far as Catholic schools across the country are concerned, that, that is very unique to us. We teach our students both uh, Catholic tradition, Ignatian spirituality, and their traditional Native American spirituality, history, uh, and worldview. So it's, it's a combined dual faith mission. Um, that wasn't always the case when the school was founded back in 1888. It started off as Holy Rosary Mission. Uh, and like a lot of Christian and Catholic mission schools at the time serving on American Indian reservations, it has a history that isn't so bright uh, and, in fact, quite dark. Um, so we've come a long way since then, changing our name in the 70s, really reflecting uh, at least the, the shift that we've consciously made to be a, a much more different institution. When you, when you say sort of a dark history, what types of things happened in schools like this? Boarding schools are really well known for, uh, sorry, boarding schools that served American Indian students, especially those off reservation, but certainly uh, those on reservation as well, um, have a history of abuse. Um, it was fairly commonplace to suppress the indigenous language um, through physical means. Uh, so there was punishment for students who spoke in their native tongue and didn't speak in English. Hair cutting um, was a particular traumatizing experience because traditionally long hair was the cultural norm was very sacred. You only cut your hair, at least in our tradition, on the, the Pine Ridge Reservation, you only cut your hair during times of mourning. And so to then have children being taken in one by one and just having their hair systematically cut short um, was a real loss and a traumatic moment for a lot of the students there. Um, beyond that, there was uh, physical and and sexual abuse. Um, that, I think, is very much a still relevant conversation today as we talk about, you know, the Pennsylvania reports and things like that, of that nature. This is something that also happened to young people in mission schools on Indian reservations and off Indian reservations. How does that history um, play out today? Are are there tensions still at the school and on the reservation um, because of because of that legacy of abuse? Absolutely, we're at the epicenter of that sort of historical, intercultural, interreligious dialogue, healing, um, reconciliation, tension, all of those things, and we face it directly, sometimes indirectly, in other ways. Uh, so, yeah, we're we're definitely at the center of that conversation regularly. Have the have the Jesuits done anything specific to work towards that reconciliation? Well, I would say that that depends on the perspective of of the different members of the community. Um, there are people on the reservation who 
are more sympathetic to um, the Jesuits, especially their desire to to change and and have a very different relationship with with the tribe and with the school. Uh, so in that sense, there are people who feel like they've done their their due diligence. They've really worked to change the school to still be devoted to the to the mission there, um, while at the same time being more open, being more uh, again um, intercultural, interreligious. Um, and then there are others who feel that, that it's not enough. And and that's the interesting thing about historical trauma in general. It, it, it's a narrative. Um, it has psychological impact, but ultimately it, it's history that is sort of socially endorsed as memory. And in that sense, memory is up to interpretation. Um, and so people find different ways in which to continually interpret the Jesuits' actions in in the light of that history, um, as opposed to finding other ways to sort of reinterpret. What are uh, some of the, the ways and practices that happen at the school today that sort of integrate these two identities? Yeah. And can you explain a little bit about what Lakota spirituality is? Just also yeah, answering that question. In a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like, not more than 10 I mean, seconds, though, please. Yeah, okay. I will try and keep the count in my head. Um, Lakota spirituality and philosophy um, is very much um, centered around the community. Uh, it's very much based in uh, a belief in in a greater God, in a, in a higher being um, that connects all of us. We call that Wakantaka, or this, this great mystery. And in that sense, that's where the Jesuits have sort of latched on to a connection, that, that there's a, a simultaneous belief in a, in a higher power. Um, I think where they sometimes diverge is uh, Lakota spirituality is not as, um, how do I put it, um, dogmatic. Um, it has some elements that sort of remain consistent, um, but otherwise, depending on the community you're in, depending on the spiritual leader that you sort of adhere to, um, different things can can change. Um, Meaning there's no like fixed institution pushing out teachings and doctrines and such. Yes, we don't have um, encyclicals and things like that. <laughs> gotcha. Um, <laughs> um, so in that sense, Lakota spirituality is very fluid. Um, it has certainly changed over time. Um, what is determined original and what is determined to be sort of influenced by uh, European and other uh, influences is still one of the things that's up for debate. Um, but there is a core. There, there's a core belief in a greater power. There's a core belief um, that all creation is essentially related, um, that everybody is a, is a family. Um, that's uh, really emphasized in the phrase that we use that is often compared to, at least in, in its usage, um, to the to the Catholic Amen, right? The sort of ending of every prayer. Um, and that's Mitake Oyansi, which means we are all related. Um, and it's just a, this continuous reminder that um, that everything is is connected, as cliche as that might sound. Um, it certainly has its, its origin um, in that. Um, and at Red Cloud, how that looks is very unique. Um, we offer at the high school level two years worth of simultaneous Catholic instruction um, and Lakota instruction. So just in instruction in both areas um, 
for example, the sacred stories, right? Uh, the sacred stories of the Bible in one end and the sacred stories that are within Lakota tradition and oral um, recollection and oral memory. Are most of the students Catholic or not? No, um, a majority of the students are not Catholic. Um, in fact, a very small percentage is. Um, every year we have, out of a population of 200 high school students, maybe anywhere from 7 to 12 in a good year, um, seeking confirmation, um, which is still a consistent amount, but certainly small compared to the whole population of the school. So, no, we serve mostly non-Catholics. And that's not to say that the inherent faith identity of the rest of the students is traditional Lakota. Um, like many Catholic schools across this country and in maybe in, West, in the Western world, um, there's just, you know, an alarming number of, of uh, those who don't have any faith. Um, so we have a lot of students who maybe they're, they practice and respect their traditional uh, beliefs out of a sense that this is their culture. Um, but the spiritual belief may not actually be present. But uh, you you are Lakota Catholic. So can, can you tell us a little bit about your own background and how that influences you as an educator? Yeah, um, I do identify as Lakota Catholic. Um, it's a relatively small, I think, amount of people who do so. Um, and certainly unique to that particular area. Um, but that really comes from, I think, just my own background. Um, my father was uh grew up a very devout catholic and was a product of holy rosary mission when it was still a boarding school and he um in fact at one point was a benedictine monk um before leaving uh the order and, and marrying um and entering that that lay ministry uh but he married my mother who was very very much a traditionalist um and was in fact quite anti-christian um i grew up in this uh, I wouldn't call it a mixed faith household because again, the, the separation was very clear. Um, at least on my mother's side, my father was a dual practitioner. So we grew up going to mass every Sunday. Uh, I was, you know, baptized, um, went through my first communion confirmation. Um, but then on the same token, we had our sweat lodge ceremony every two weeks growing up, which is a, a sort of regular prayer ceremony for us in the uh, Lakota tradition. And having Sundance every summer, um, which is another major um, ceremony. And so I grew up being immersed in both spiritualities. And, you know, having been a teenager and a college student, trying to figure out um, to what extent I was one or the other or neither. And, and I think now in my adult life, I, I am very much, I very much consider myself a Lakota Catholic. So growing up, did you feel like you had to choose between one or the other? In some senses, yes, um, and in others, no. Uh, my dad very much lived out uh, in very in a very deliberate way. He lived out both spiritualities. And my mother, on the other hand, was very black and white. The story I really love to tell about that whole dynamic is when I was about maybe I don't know eight or nine years old. I asked my mom why she never came with us to mass, and she said, "Well, because I don't believe in that, and it's just fundamentally incompatible with." Um, with our Lakota tradition, and so this sort of take, took me aback because here I was doing both. Um, and I said, well, why? Um, what, what, what do you mean when you say that? And she said, well, all you have to know about a people is through their origin story. So you know the origin story of the Catholic faith, and 
And I said, yes, it's you know, Adam and Eve. And she said, well, look at what Adam and Eve tells you, right? Tells you that uh, women are subservient to men, that uh, that humankind is, is not actually supposed to be here, that Earth is a place of banishment and, and not a, a place of, of uh, not our mother, as we say in Alakota tradition. Um, so that's all you, you know, that's all you need to know to know that they're completely and fundamentally incompatible. And I was sort of devastated. Um, How old were you when, 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 when this conversation happens? I was like nine. Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> Theolo- budding theologian. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, well, my household was, was um, probably overtly intellectual to a fault. Um, but uh, I went to my dad and I asked him about that. You know, hey, dad, this is what mom said. Mom said that they're incompatible and what am I supposed to do with that? And he said, he kind of gave this really sort of depressing, but accepting sigh and said, well, your mom's not wrong, but um, what she's talking about is, is culture. And she said, the, the origin stories of all faiths, you know, reflect particular cultures and worldviews and, and God is about that and beyond that. And that cultures can sometimes, you know, be incorrect. Um, and we learn better as we move forward but god is what is mm. is eternal and yeah, that was a huge relief and also my dad's brilliant um but uh that was an example of just the dynamic of that household what is what is that upbringing what does that taught you in terms of evangelizing at or i don't know if you would consider your school a place where you should be evangelizing um but what is what has that taught you do you do you try to convince students or form them in a certain way? Yeah, that's a super interesting question. Evangelization as a word and as an idea is an extremely dirty word in Indian country um, because of the historic connotation and, and all the things that came with it, the, the sort of negative and and brutal and perhaps even genocidal um, tactics that came with evangelization. So no, in no way, shape, or form is Red Cloud, uh, does Red Cloud consider itself a a sort of evangelatory project. Um, I don't even know what's the word, um, but an evangelization project. Um, and for us, I think, well, I shouldn't say for us, for me, uh, I believe very strongly in our students and our young people on our reservation um, having a relationship with a higher power, whatever that happens to look like. I think our traditions are perfectly legitimate. Uh, ways of knowing God. I think, uh, obviously, Catholic uh, faith is, is a beautiful way of knowing God, and I think the mix that I have of those two things is is absolutely legitimate. So that's what I hope. I hope that our students walk away um, in some way having a relationship with a higher power, um, because that's really where our challenge lies, not just, again, not just at RecPod, but across this country. Um, I, and I do think it's important um, to to have that relationship uh, to a higher being. So, so the evangelization evangelization issue to me, um, I think it just looks like uh, helping students find hope. Um, I think it helps. It, it's the the project of helping young people um, avoid despair, which I think is so prevalent, um, especially on Indian reservations where. Poverty is high, alcoholism is high, abuse is high. Um, and so our young people 
have a lot to despair for and very little to hope for, and we have to build that. And to me, that's evangelization. Speaking of hope, you've written that, my hope is that we can learn that we can be indigenous in all these other things, Catholic, worldly, a diplomat, a scientist, etc. My hope is that being indigenous is not limited. So how do you help your students navigate what it means to be indigenous in 2018? That's that's the question of the century. Um, I think, and it's certainly the project I've been most dedicated to in my work, I I I see so much um, so much of how indigenous identity, Native American identity, is used as a as a tool for limitation. Meaning that when we talk about Native American people, there's this sort of inherent um, idea that they're historical, um, that they're that traditions are historical, that uh, things should really be preserved and 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 that more or less indigenous identity is something that needs to be protected and saved and maintained. And all of that really sort of pushes this, this narrative of stasis, um, which I think can be really detrimental. Um, in so many schools that serve marginalized people, um, there's what we call the deficit mentality uh, in, in schools and in education in general. Um, this is especially true of you know, urban inner city schools that serve mostly black and Latino students. Um, but also in a lot of rural schools as well, um, where uh, administrators and teachers all come in with this sense of, well, these kids are poor, they're, they're suffering from all these, all these things at home that we have no control over. And in order to do something about that, um, it, it becomes a sort of pity festival and you end up sort of lowering the bar um, as opposed to challenging students to meet that bar. Um, and it's something that plagues a lot of schools that serve students in poverty, students of color, uh, et cetera. So I'm really interested in this idea of um, challenging all educators to, to value the dignity of the students. I think Catholic schools have a unique um, way to do that uh, and a sort of unique framework to do that. Not that other schools aren't capable of doing that, um, but certainly there's a frame that already exists about valuing the inherent dignity of all people. And uh, I'm, my work is really interested in how we combat the deficit mentality um, amongst our educators, uh, amongst uh, our administrators, most of whom are primarily still not Native. Or and not that Native people aren't you know, immune from the deficit mentality. They, too, can come in and, and sort of see the students as unteachable. Um, and therefore we just, we just do our best given these circumstances. Um, so it's, it's about deconstructing all of that and, and really, um, helping educators, uh, teach with dignity in mind. Makad, this has been great. Um, we've got one final question for you. If you could canonize anyone living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> that is a good question. Um, I'm a little biased because one of my ancestors right now is currently up for canonization um, or the process is happening, um, Black Elk, mm-hmm. um, is, which is something I think you probably read the article that was about that. So um, who, who is Black Elk I, for those who didn't? <laughs> Black Elk is actually my great-great-great-grandfather on my mom's side, uh, interestingly enough. And he was a, a spiritual man, a medicine man. Um, he was a leader in many ways. Um, was the subject of a, of a book called Black Elk Speaks, where he 
uh, along with the author John G. Neidhart, uh, outlined essentially what are the what the core tenets and beliefs of of Lakota spirituality, and it sort of is now considered one of the go-to texts uh, in Native American theology, especially of the Great Plains. Um, but he was also Catholic. Um, he uh, spent his early years as a catechist, um, and uh, you know worked um, with the Catholic Church uh, on the reservation, and is now sort of a symbol, uh, I think, in many ways, of that Lakota Catholic identity. So, yeah, he is currently up for uh, the process. He's uh, and there's been some some news around that, I, and so I, I say it's a challenging place because I simultaneously think it would be really awesome to have Black Elk as a saint. And at the same time, I don't want to be a descendant of a saint because I feel like it's a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that. All right. Well, Maka, thank you so much for talking with us and for the work you're doing. And where can people learn more about uh, your work or Red Cloud? Uh, they could come to Red Cloud's website, redcloudschool.org, um, where we uh, you know, have a lot of great stories every day about uh, what we do and, and how we're doing it. Um, and they should certainly come to visit us in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Now it's time for some housekeeping. We want to say again that this episode is brought to you by Cristo Rey Jesuit High School in Chicago. For 23 years, Cristo Rey has educated students from Latino families with limited means, preparing the leaders of tomorrow today. Learn more about their mission at CristoRey.net. Also, if you're looking for an event to go to this month and you're in Denver or you want to go to Denver, check out the Solidarity on Tap event on October 23rd at Diebold Brewing Company. The topic's going to be on climate change in Denver. Also, shout out this week to Kayla Myers, who is a new Patreon at the Ambassador level. And if you're not following us on Patreon and supporting us, do so at patreon.com slash Media. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Olga? This week, I've got a consolation. Um, Enoch and I were at Riverside Church um, on Sunday, and there was a baptism by immersion, which I have never seen before. Um, and it was really cool. Just want to start off by saying that. What do you mean was, by immersion? She was fully immersed in the water. She was a white robe and dunked into like a bathtub in front of the entire congregation. It was pretty dope. But the consolation was that she was so happy about this baptism and just seeing this, which I've never seen this kind of baptism before, just seeing this and seeing the joy and sort of the spirit just coming alive in her just made me see God and also just notice how the Holy Spirit is alive and active in our lives. Even moments where, you know, we, we've talked about struggling in previous episodes and in weeks. Uh, and I just felt like really consoled to see that and to be in the presence of someone's faith in that way. So nice. Personally, I think that's how all baptisms should be done. I'm really anti, like, little cup of water on your forehead. <laughs> I think it's pretty lame. Same. And full immersion all the way, all the time. What do you have, Zach? So this week, I have a consolation. Um, I was at a full immersion wedding over the weekend. I'm kidding. There's no such thing. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I was at a wedding in Chicago over the weekend for one of my uh, best friends from college, and the thing that really brought me consolation was I was, this is like a group who I hadn't seen in a while, right? Um, and we were all brought together to celebrate love in this moment. And so I'm seeing where, you know, God brought together these people that love me in the wholeness in college. And there is this, I could see where God was then. I could see where God was presently because of like, I mean, it was so moving to be together with them to celebrate their love. And also I'm starting to see where 
God is, you know, leading me further, right? Like I'm bringing my fiance, there's obviously a wedding in my future, but also a lot of the the seeds that we, that were sown in college, like are starting to, to bud, right? Like all of our careers are starting to, you know, start out and flourish. Like my friend Joe's almost done with med school. He's going to be on his way to being a doctor. Other people are, you know, buying homes and, you know, getting married and doing really cool things. And I, so God led me to see where he was in my past, in my present and where he's leading me. And so that was like a really unique thing that I hadn't experienced in that way before. And so that's my consolation this week. Nice. You're totally budding, Zach. <laughs> Thank you. A beautiful flower <laughs> underneath a, underneath oh. a giant stone, maybe. But uh, what do you got, Ashley? I also have a consolation. It's so nice for all three of us to have consolations. It's been a while, <laughs> I feel like. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned last week that I was kind of dreading my birthday because I always do. Um, and I was like hit over the head with so much love on my birthday. Um, my coworkers, uh, especially are one of Jess Whitacle's number one fans, Rosa Del Saz, uh, threw me a surprise party and my parents came up. Which from- we totally knew about <laughs> while you were talking about dreading your birthday. I know, I know. It was, was so, it, like uh, we- Yeah, we kept it together, Olga. Mm-hmm, that I, I'm really impressed. I was so completely surprised and I don't know, I have this problem of like imagining other people thinking and caring about me if they're not like right in front of me telling me that they love me. <laughs> Like, even though I know, like, I think about people all the time and, like, just pray for them or think about what's going on in their lives. I can't imagine other people, like, doing that for me. And so having a surprise party that I knew, like, people, like, you know, it takes work and people came out and my parents came made me realize that, like, I am very much loved all all the time. Um, And that was really amazing. It was just a... Sometimes God speaks in a whisper and sometimes he like <laughs> screams and throws balloons at you. And candles and <laughs> song. Uh, so thank you both and everyone at America for making my 28th birthday really, really amazing. So. All right. Well, happy birthday, Ashley. Happy birthday. Thanks. And get us out of here. <laughs> Jesuitical is brought to you by American Media and produced by Eloise Blondio. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Adverbs provided by John Doggerty. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Engineering by Emma Winters. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Shout out this week to no one. You guys, come on, we need more reviews. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week.